Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is made possible thanks to our Patreon members. To find out how you can support this podcast directly and enjoy other exclusive benefits, go to patreon.com slash Skolnick. Here's episode three. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Peter Green has packed up, moved away, and said goodbye. Today we are remembering a great artist, guitarist, singer, songwriter, someone whose influence extends far beyond his own name recognition. So goodbye, babe. If you went out on the street today and you were to poll random people and ask them, have you heard of Eric Clapton? Well, chances are, unless they're visiting from some sheltered indigenous community on an island somewhere, they've heard of Eric Clapton. If you did the same experiment with Jeff Beck, you'd have a similar result. Okay, maybe the familiarity with the music might not be the same. After all, Layla has had a little bit more reach than, say, lead boots. But if you ask these same people, and we're talking random people on the street. We're not talking patrons at Antone's in Austin or folks browsing on Denmark Street in London, where all the guitar shops are. If you were to ask them, have you heard of Peter Green? Well, chances are, unless they're specific fans of music, they might think you're asking if you've heard of a certain athlete or actor. Yet if you were to ask Eric Clapton or Jeff Beck or Carlos Santana or the late, great Gary Moore or the late, great B.B. King, or anybody else you might put in that category, what they think of Peter Green. Well, you'd get an answer that not only reflects a name they're familiar with, but one they hold in the highest regard. In 1967, 
only one British blues guitarist was known to play at this level. That was Eric Clapton. And it's fitting because that's a recording session in which the guitar player was supposed to be Eric Clapton. Why was Peter Green the guitarist at this session instead of Mr. Clapton? That'll be explained soon enough. Now, I have a brief confession to make. I feel like I should have known much more about Peter Green than I have until now. I probably have this in common with some of you. I knew the basics. I knew he wrote Black Magic Woman, which was a hit for Santana, but before that had been released by Fleetwood Mac. Uh, this, Yes, <laughs> the same Fleetwood Mac, but not the same Fleetwood Mac. Um, some of the same members, same name but a very different sound, Fleetwood Mac 1.0. I knew he replaced Eric Clapton in John Mayo's Blues Breakers, which that last recording was taken from. And I'd learned a few bits and pieces, including the lick from Oh Well, which is the one original Fleetwood Mac song that became a classic rock staple. However, as I've discovered, and as you will discover, there's a whole treasure trove of great Peter Green material out there. I also knew he was part of this unfortunate group of great artists who were sidelined by mental illness. Uh, it brings to mind Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, Roki Erickson of 13th Floor Elevators, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, all incredible artists affected in different ways who may have had underlying conditions originally, but were not helped by the wild rock and roll lifestyle of the 60s, particularly the uh, emerging psychedelia movement, which at that time was unregulated and not always safe for um, certain people. And many great artists survived the acid movement just fine and uh, expanded their creativity. But um, there were casualties, and Peter Green was definitely one of those casualties. So while I know some things about Peter Green, there's so much more to know. So for my sake, and the sake of this episode of Moods and Modes, I've brought along a few friends whose knowledge of all things Peter Green far eclipses my own. Yeah, man, his phrasing tone. Golly, man. You know, I never played a Les Paul growing up. Uh -huh. And I would always try to emulate that sound, and it was never possible. Yeah, well, nobody sounds like him. He doesn't no. sound like anybody else, really. No, not at all. That is Texas blues guitarist extraordinaire Mike Zito, originally from St. Louis, also a fine singer, songwriter, producer, full-time blues man. There wasn't this hurry to play. And he just approaches it like a vocal. Right. Yeah, that's what I say. It always sounded very horn-like to me. Yeah. Like, he he would kind of build these lines. And um, I think most impressive to me was that um, it didn't go... Right. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with going... Mike has an appreciation for many styles of music, but like I said, he's a full-time blues devotee. Used to play with Royal Southern Brotherhood, which contains the offspring of members of the Allman Brothers and the Neville Brothers. He has an album that just re-entered the blues charts. It's a tribute to Chuck Berry, Rock and Roll. It came out last year. I am beyond honored to have been a guest on this album, which includes some serious full-time blues folks, and I'm just grateful they let me humbly tag along. So in the background, you're hearing the title track, to Mike's appropriately titled latest album. Just for a moment, I'm going to read from a piece on NPR.org written by Tom Cole entitled Remembering Fleetwood Mac founder Peter Green, the soulful voice of British blues. This is a few paragraphs in. Peter Allen Greenbaum was born October 29, 1946, at home in the Bethnal Green neighborhood of London's East End. His grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Poland and Ukraine. Fascism and anti-Semitism were on the rise in England as well as Germany in the years before World War II. Thugs threw bricks and bottles through the windows of Jewish homes in the East End. After the war, Peter's father officially changed the family name to Green. As a teenager, Green was gigging as a bassist in local bands, 
before moving on to lead guitar and eventually joining John Mayall. But he was restless in the Blues Breakers, and by 1967 he left to form his own band with drummer Mick Fleetwood, who'd been fired by Mayall. And, end of quote, this is me again. Incidentally, John Mayall's Blues Breakers is this vehicle where some of the best musicians have passed through. But it's strict blues, Mayall runs a tight ship, and for a lot of musicians it ends up being a, a stepping stone. And then I think Mayall knows this, and he seems okay with that. Mick Fleetwood, incidentally, claims to have known he was going to be fired, and counting down the days, he and John Mayall today tease each other about it. So just a quick observation. There are many iconic rock bands that have a blues component. Everybody, from the Beatles to the Stones to, uh, you know, ACDC has a great blues, the Jack. Yet there are very few who you, I think you could put on tour with the blues greats like um, these guys aren't around anymore, but like Howlin' Wolf and B.B. King and uh, win over that audience. And some of the Fleetwood Mac stuff, it's on that level. I mean, look no further than the fact that B.B. King himself was eager to contribute to the foreword to a biography on Peter Green called Peter Green, Founder of Fleetwood Mac by Martin Kelmans. There's also a recording of the band jamming with blues greats in Chicago. It's a wonderful recording, very informal with uh, studio banter and control room talk and tuning up. Hopefully we can look at it in this episode, if not in a future episode, because it's amazing. And this album, uh, Blues Jam in Chicago, it's pure blues. And throughout the Fleetwood Mac catalog, the early Fleetwood Mac catalog, there is pure blues. Yet, there are other songs that, if they were to launch into this stuff on the hypothetical tour supporting Howlin' Wolf or the hypothetical blues festival playing a slot in between John Lee Hooker, Albert Collins, and Willie Dixon, well, I'm pretty sure the band wouldn't have been invited back and the audience may have walked out. Yet this other side of Fleetwood Mac, the more experimental side, let's say, was a huge hit and just perfect for the era that gave us the Summer of Love, Hate Ashbury, and Woodstock. The craziness that went along with this time period took its toll on the band. The band only lasted three years and especially took its toll on Peter. Now, those of us who have somehow managed to carve out a living in the music industry, we've seen a few things. We've heard a few things. We're not easily shocked. But the band known as Fleetwood Mac in the late 60s had a very turbulent three years. Some of these things that went on, well, they're shocking. Here's Mike Zito again. That was the tone. That was the, the licks. You know, he just had it. Down And, of course, I was always intrigued by the rock stars and the drug stories. And, you know, you always hear the story. I think the story I heard, like, he went, like, Fleetwood Mac came to America. And by the time they got to the West Coast, like, he had sold all his guitars or something or and, and joined a, a commune. Does that even sound correct now? He's mostly right about that. In just three short years, the band had gone from a pure blues band playing the UK clubs to a band so big they were outselling the Beatles and the Stones combined. This is true, in 1969. So they go to the West Coast on tour. They visit the Haight-Ashbury district, which is thriving. They meet the Grateful Dead and their infamous sound man chemist, quote-unquote, Owlsley, who turns them on to acid for the first time. And they have some surreal experiences there. But it's a short time later in the year when Peter comes into contact with a cult-like commune, embraces a strange form of spirituality, renounces all his worldly possessions, and this takes place in the city of Munich? As the band's fame grew, Peter reluctantly became the focus of attention. During a tour of the States, the band embraced the psychedelic culture of the San Francisco scene. But it wasn't until they reached Munich on a European tour that the focus of attention took on a more sinister tone. Peter was becoming increasingly disillusioned with fame, fortune and faith. And during that trip to Munich, 
he was drawn into an acid-fueled elitist commune that some say left him mentally scarred for life. This whole story of getting dosed with bad LSD in Munich, meeting a group of anarchists, and Mick Fleetwood tells the story. I've told it many times. It seems to be what happened. And, and he was fragile anyway. I mean, he did have a fragile thing, and he was diagnosed. That came afterwards. It seemed to come up afterwards, but he he was fragile. He, he, he didn't have a fragile psyche. There's, there's no question about it. All he needed was to be pushed. You know? Dave Rubin is the author of numerous method books for Hal Leonard, the largest sheet music publisher in the world, including one entitled Peter Green, Signature Licks. Peter's had a very very tough last 30 or 40 years. He's kind of like a Sid Barrett of guitar, although he's come back a few times. You know, yeah, well, to a degree. Yeah. And he did, and, and he did, and I saw him about 10 years ago at B.B. At King's and I met him briefly. It was a mm. big thrill. It was very brief. Uh-huh. And he didn't sound, he was like a sideman in his own band. There was another guitar player who was like leading it and singing. He was, um, you know, he was standing there and, and, and just like, and then once in a while, mm-hmm. like the, the switch would go on and he'd play and you'd see just for a moment, Alex, a little bit of the old Peter Green. Let's get back to the old Peter Green. Boston, 1967, small venue. First time in the United States for the band. They're not that well known. No pop charts. No acid experimentation. That was still a couple years away. So for people that want to, like in this day and age, immerse themselves in Peter Green and his greatness, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot. The Boston Tea Party, Fleetwood yeah. Mac Live at the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, that I've like, checked out. That's amazing. There's three volumes of that, and um, Joe Perry, who's a guy I've gotten to know really well over the years, uh-huh. he told me he was at every one of those shows. Oh, wow. That's Andy Allidort, longtime journalist for numerous guitar magazines, working blues player, and last year, the co-author of a book, along with Alan Paul. The book is called Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. It's highly recommended. Incidentally, the sound quality isn't great. Uh, We will no longer be using Zoom audio for the calls, lesson learned. So in case that was hard to understand, he's referring to these early Fleetwood Mac shows in Boston, which fortunately there exists a whole series of recordings. So there happened to be a young man in the audience who was an aspiring musician who would go on to form a band called Aerosmith. His name was Joe Perry. And he talked to Peter. Like, you know, Joe was like 18 and he thought that, you know, it would be like trying to hang out with the Beatles or something, but like nobody like really knew who they were. And when the show ended, like there weren't fans and groupies everywhere. There was just the band. Joe Perry said he, he saw Fleetwood Mac and just said, that's the template for the band I want to be in. Like that's it, you know. Like, I'm going to have a band, and that's what it's going to be. It's going to be two guitars, bass and drums. You know, that's the instrumentation. And pretty much that's what Aerosmith is, you know. Is that beautiful? That's from Fleetwood Mac's Live in Boston series, a song called Jumping at Shadows. So a couple quick observations. First, an observation as a player. I feel like there is a slight similarity between some of his licks and B.B. King. So let me explain. And I'm going to try not to lose the non-guitar players. This should be a podcast for everybody. At the same time, there have been requests from musicians that would like me to elaborate on some of the licks that are played in the podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a quick BB King imitation. So this is played on a Lucille type guitar. It's actually a 347, 
but it's in the 335 category of Gibson. I'm bending at the 10th fret, 2nd string. Maybe if I go from the bend straight to the root, right, that's a very BB thing. If I add some of the other notes and just play them, right, what if I start from the um, 7th fret, 3rd string? That's very BB. Or how about this? So I feel like I hear that BB King influence, at least in terms of melodic pattern and placement on the neck. Now watch what happens if I play the same patterns on a slightly distorted Les Paul. Okay, that's it. This episode is not about me. So my theory is that there is some overlap with their licks, but when you consider the fact that B.B. King is playing through a 335 and a clean rig, and Peter Green is playing through a screaming 59 Les Paul that's uh, overdriven, um, and it just requires a completely different feel, in addition to the individual feels that they have based on their personalities. Now the guitar you just heard me playing is a 1960 Gold Top reissue, and that's just fine with me. It's actually now as old as it was pretending to be when it was new. Now a real 1960 Les Paul, and especially a 1959 like Peter Green's, will set you back quite a bit. It's kind of like buying a house. And Peter Green's guitar itself has quite a unique story behind it. That's coming up. But first, remember I said I had a couple theories. Well, you heard one of my musical theories, and this next thought isn't really a theory, it's just an observation, and it's not just mine either. It's clearly stated and proven, I think, in the film about Peter Green. It's a documentary called the Peter Green Story, Man of the World. A little while back, we heard a few seconds of a clip, a very lovely voice from the UK that's borrowed from this film, which is highly recommended, by the way. And even in that clip, it begins talking about how Peter was so uncomfortable being the center of attention. So that's what I want to focus on right now. I think we have to consider that when we think about the unfortunate trajectory that Peter's life took. This is somebody who was so incredibly gifted. He could play guitar on the level of the blues masters, and he could sing. Not that he had a voice like McCartney, where the voice itself could have launched a great career, but he had a, a unique voice, and it worked very well with his music. And he could create music that was cutting edge and different at the time. So, of course you're going to be the center of attention. And that's what they tried to do. They said, you're going to have the Peter Green Band. He didn't want the Peter Green Band. This is what, you know, the label and management telling him, we're building a band around you. It's going to be Peter Green or Peter Green Band, whatever you want to call it. What does he say? No, I don't want to do that. Um, let's name it after my rhythm section. <laughs> the rhythm section guys are Mick Fleetwood and John McVie. Now, John McVie wasn't even in the band yet when the name was chosen. But supposedly, Peter Green had, had his eye on McVie anyway, liked his bass playing, and it probably didn't hurt that he fit the name Fleetwood Mac. It's a great name. So the label and the management deal with it, and they tried to do one of these sneaky moves where they, they put out the record, they used the name Fleetwood Mac, but they called it Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. And they figured, okay, it'll come out, he'll, he'll deal with it, he'll throw a tantrum, but he'll get over it. It comes out, and no! No, no, no! It's just Fleetwood Mac! 
Halt the printing. Cancel the press release. He would not think of it. When you do music professionally, you meet so many people that want to be the center of attention, that need to be the center of attention, even if they're off stage. So it's all the more admirable to think about somebody like Peter Green, who was not in it for attention. What he did, how he channeled himself, drew attention, but the attention wasn't the point of it. The point of it was expression, and in his case, a, a spirituality. It almost reminds me of Cat Stevens, in a way. That's another artist who's searching for answers, you could say, and also dropped off the face of the earth at one point and returned. This is a quote from a biography on Peter Green called uh, Peter Green, Founder of Fleetwood Mac by Martin Coleman's, and it's from his uh, girlfriend during the time he was in Fleetwood Mac. Quote, uh, Peter's music was an expression of his emotional and spiritual being. He's a deeply spiritual person, and that was his main driving force, to express that spirituality. He wasn't out to be famous, and the responsibility of the power that goes along with that kind of position was not something he wanted. Unquote. This just makes the whole story that much more intense and more clear. He's a really good guy in it for the right reasons. Pure. He was too pure. As uh, many of us can tell you, the music business is not that pure. The entertainment business is not that pure. The world of commerce is not that pure. Peter Green was a pure spirit in an impure world. Now, there were a few different ways in which Peter's lack of self as it's described by Mick Fleetwood in that same biography, uh, manifested itself. The obvious way was the naming of the band. You wouldn't think about Peter Green or Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. It had to be Fleetwood Mac. Um, and also he insisted on sharing the spotlight, bringing in an, another singer-guitarist. Who does that? <laughs> so he invites um, Jeremy Spencer to share and, and, to, and it's great. It's a good combination. And eventually they have a third guitarist, uh, Danny Kerwin. So, that, you know, before, long before Leonard Skinner, these guys had three guitars. So all of this helps explain why if you go out on the street, you'll find many more people familiar with names like Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton. Yes, he fell off the face of the earth metaphorically after the 60s. Yet even during the 60s, which is considered his prime, he resisted all attempts to have him presented as a featured member of a band or anything other than one of several team players. You have to admire that. So it goes without saying that even with a three guitar attack, his playing was so distinct that it stood out. But it's nice to hear him in a situation where it's just him playing guitar. So fortunately, we have that thanks to John Mayle and the Blues Breakers, the album Hard Road, which immediately followed the album with Eric Clapton. And there's some interesting stories around that. Here's Dave Rubin again. I did the Blues Breakers book of the, of the Clapton Blues Breakers book. And, uh, and then when I was doing the Peter Green book, I got to interview Mike Vernon a couple of times. Very gracious man. He's the producer a British blues producer who, who did all the Fleetwood Mac albums uh, except for then play on and did the blues breakers albums and then dozens and dozens of other really nice man. Well, he had great stories about the Clapton blues breaker album with mail, but um, what he said was they wanted to do a second one. The first one was, you know, relatively successful. And then you have the blues boom, going on in England at the time and the whole thing mm -hmm. and starting to happen here. So that first album was very successful and they decided they're going to do a second one. So, uh, a lot of people didn't know that Clapton had already left. He's already on his way to cream mm. and green has taken his, has been hired in his place and they all knew about him and, 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 and wanted him. And, um, <laughs> you know, they show up at the studio and the engineers and everybody else who was so thrilled with the first album 
like, where's Clapton? <laughs> well, we got this guy here, Peter Green. Yeah. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, they're, 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 it's a disaster. You know, we, we're, yeah, we where's our star attraction? Yeah. Yeah. And, and Mike Vernon says, wait a minute. Wait till you hear this guy. <laughs> and, and apparently that happened to, to him on the bandstand, too, for a while. People didn't know Clapton had left. They come to see Mayall in the blues clubs in England, and here's this guy. Here's the new guy who they didn't know. I mean, he had played. It wasn't like he hadn't been in bands. hadn't been any, in any well-known bands, to my knowledge. And here's this guy. And they, they're expecting to hear Clapton, you know, God. They want to hear God on stage. Uh, they got the green God instead. And, um, of course, you know, I mean, the rest is history. Those who are guitar players, guitar fans, or folks just generally up on the rock history probably know what he's talking about. In 1966, John Mayle Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, the album, comes out. In seemingly no time, three words begin appearing all over London and across the UK, carved into the walls of pub restrooms, spray-painted in back alleys. Those three words are, Clapton is God. How ironic is it that who we now know to be this deeply sensitive spiritual person that doesn't want attention, that doesn't have an ounce of vanity, that doesn't even want his name on the record, he is handed this position, taking over for somebody who's known as God. What an incredible thing that Peter did to follow in the shoes of God, you know, Eric Clapton. That's Andy Alador again. I only stole two records in my whole life, but they were <laughs> both from the same girl when I was uh, 15 years old and starting to really get interested in uh, playing more. Um, and that was back in 1971, I was 15. And the two records I stole were Blind Faith and um, a John Mayall album called Looking Back, which uh, was like a retrospective. There were all these Peter Green tracks on the record Just curious. So you you said you stole the record. Was it stolen from a store? Or? No, I stole both records from this girl. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time, thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Oh, um, I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but, you know, it's going to sound really bad. But, you know, I just look at it like, well, I need to own this more than she does. Uh, because I'm going to learn every lick uh, to the best of my ability on this uh, record. Werner Herzog stole his first camera. Oh, you're kidding. Nope. And he just said, you know, nobody's using it. I'm going to be a filmmaker. I'm going to give this a better purpose in the world. That's a true story. Werner Herzog tells it well in one of his documentaries. Not saying it's okay. Don't steal kids. But the So Many Roads, which is an Otis Fresh tune, um, Peter Green's playing is just phenomenal. Like, it's it's phenomenal. It will kill you. It's incredible. Case, that was hard to understand. So Many Roads, which is an Otis Rush tune, Peter Green's playing is phenomenal. It will kill you. <laughs> Thank you. 
not kidding, right? So a little tip for those of you exploring this music on iTunes. There are two versions of this album. The album's called A Hard Road by John Mayall and the Blues Breakers from 1967. So one version of it has lighter artwork and it has 14 songs. I guess that's closer to the original. And the other one has slightly darker artwork. This one has 28 songs, including So Many Roads, which doesn't appear on the other version. And there's also several sessions from BBC Radio of the band. So if you're rushing to iTunes to check this out, just be careful because there are two album covers. They look very much alike. Go for the one with 28 songs. So folks, we're at the half hour mark. I have a feeling this is going to be the first episode that runs an hour or longer. This could even be a multi-part episode. We'll see how it goes. You can always do a sequel, either as a direct follow-up or something we revisit at a later time. Either way, I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am enjoying making this. This is really a blast for me, I have to say. This is kind of like making an audio movie. I love not having to worry about video. <laughs> Maybe we can add video components at some point, but uh, I like the idea of you just being able to walk around and get this full story. All the music is there. Your eyes can do something else, and you can see the story in your head. So I love how guys like uh, Mark Marin, who I'm a huge fan of, does uh, an intro every week. He checks in with everybody, talks about things going on. And I'm tempted to do something like that for the podcast, but I feel like I've already got my social media, my Instagram and everything. And as I say, during the theme music, I, you know, I, I'm pretty outspoken on Twitter. So and there's, there's so much cool material to cover here. I don't want to take away from it. I don't want to take too much time uh, talking about myself. Also, most podcasts seem to do the hellos and getting updated in the beginning. And I feel like so far Moods and Modes is working well, just kicking straight into the story. And then in the middle, I can check in and do what another favorite podcaster of mine, Sam Harris, calls housekeeping. So let's uh, do a couple housekeeping items and then we'll get back to our story. First, an official welcome to episode three. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you, Patreon members, for supporting. And thank you, everyone who has somehow made Moods and Modes a top 50 music podcast on the charts. The charts! I have to confess, I'm totally pleasantly surprised and only realized this once I started getting congratulations from tech data analysis companies that specialize in podcasts. And I thought maybe it'll catch on eventually, but uh, we were barely launched. I mean, it was really only a few days. I consider the launch day July 22nd, even though the first episode went up July 15th. I didn't say anything because I want to make sure all the kinks were ironed out and that it was working, that the artwork looked good. Um, so to be officially launched for such a short period of time and be in such good company, too. I mean, we were hovering right around the New York Times podcast and Tiny Desk Concert by NPR and Cypress Hills Be Reels podcast. So it, I'm amazed. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. So the plan was to do an episode every other week. I'm so inspired by what's happening. So now that we're a charting podcast, I'm going to try to do these a bit more regularly. I admit I tried to make the target a week from when the last one dropped, and it didn't happen. So I then I thought, okay, screw Wednesday. It'll be every Thursday. And now it's Thursday night as I'm talking to you, and I'm still working on it. So I need to get faster at this, but I'll just drop these uh, as they drop. Uh, one more disclosure you may notice the noise levels change at times when I'm talking. The reason for that is air conditioning. This week it has been in the upper 90s to 100 degrees Fahrenheit in New York City. And I am willing to suffer for my audience, but only to a point. So uh, please pardon the air conditioning noise. And now let's get back to our story on Peter Green. When we left off, Peter Green had been given the unenviable task of following in the footsteps of an artist known as God, Eric Clapton. 
The album is A Hard Road, but there's also live recordings of this lineup that have since been released. John Mayle is an interesting figure. He could have been in any number of huge bands. And this is the sense I get. I could be off base here, but I get the sense that John Mayle is someone widely admired and respected, and he seems to have good relationships with everyone. They stay friends. Um, they don't always stick in his band. In fact, they don't usually stay for long. And I think that's totally understood because it's John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. Sure, play in my band, stay as long as you want, but it's my band. We do blues. We're not uh, going to be cutting edge. We're not going to incorporate any outside sounds. We are not going to climb the pop charts. This is what we do. And it's great. And he's been doing it for years and he still does it. But you can understand why um, the lineups tend not to last that long, especially with fiercely creative members such as the lineup on Hard Road, which uh, included Peter Green on guitar and a rhythm section that consisted of Mick Fleetwood and John McPhee. Here's Andy Aladord again. On Hard Road is a Peter Green original instrumental called The Supernatural. And it really is a precursor to me. There's um, a thick atmosphere and like a depth to the feeling kind of a darkness in Peter's vibe and his playing. This seems to be the song where Peter Green taps into a whole new side of himself where the skills that he's built up playing traditional blues are there, except they're used to evoke a whole new mysterious quality with uh, Fleetwood and McVie just uh, setting the, the template. And clearly the three of them wanted to go off and explore the sound. And it seems like that became the blueprint for Fleetwood Mac 1.0. If you listen closely, you can even hear it in some moments in Fleetwood Mac 2.0. Still, if you take the original Fleetwood Mac and the songs they are best known for, that template is right there in The Supernatural. Peter's vibe is sort of his whole really distinct thing that you start to pick up on uh, when you listen to Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac, you know, like Man of the World and, and Black Magic Woman, definitely. In any, any of the songs, you know, even in O.L. or Green Manalishi. The Green Manalishi with the two-pronged crown. Oh my God, we haven't even talked about that one yet. Fans of the genre of heavy metal, something I, I know a little bit about, will probably be more familiar with this version. Judas Priest from Unleashed in the East, a 1979 live album. Now when the day goes to sleep and the full moon looks. Now these guys did such a good job on making that song their own. I think a lot of Priest fans don't realize that it was originally written by Peter Green and sounded quite different too. Now when the day goes to sleep Now, if you're like me, you grew up on the Judas Priest version of that song, and it's totally surreal to hear the drums drop out, except for the hi-hat on the second verse. But you know what? That's the original song, and that's how Peter Green wrote it. Sadly, that was his last tune with the band, as uh, he was becoming very troubled at that point, and the song is basically about a nightmare that he had involving money. That's the, the green symbolism in the song. 
Now, he describes it as a dog-like creature in a dream that's trying to entice him. It sounds like it may have been a drug-induced dream. And I can't help wondering if the word Manulishi might have been inspired by um, Maharishi, because this was relatively the same time period in which the Beatles and some other very influential people had a break from this guru in India, and they'd been following him for some time and had been seduced by his promises to help them reach enlightenment. Yet it turned out that, much like many spiritual figures whose private behavior doesn't match their message, he was a fraud. And so they'd had this public break with him, and he was known as the Maharishi. So I don't know if there's any connection, but just a pet theory. Whatever the case, there's no denying that Peter Green had a challenging relationship with money. He felt guilty about having it. At one point, he approached the band with the idea of moving into a communal house and donating all the group's future earnings to charity. To hear the rest of the band tell it, they were good to go. They felt great about the idea. They were all set to sign up. And then the drugs wore off. Peter never lost that idealism. And this whole incident had happened because he was seeing footage on television. It's much like today. You know, there's parts of the world that are deeply troubled. And you want to help. And this was in a region called uh, Biafra that had temporarily succeeded from Nigeria. And the problem was Nigeria was causing a blockade, which led to a famine. So these things often aren't that simple. And sending away all your money isn't a good idea. The sentiment is commendable. Don't get me wrong. But political engagement, raising public awareness, and other activities are probably more effective than pledging to give away all your future earnings. Now again, the spirit of generosity is deeply commendable, if not pragmatic. And being a young idealistic person, uh, Peter's watching this and he's seeing members of his band buying large homes and sports cars and saying, we have all this money. These people don't have food. Why can't we help? Let's hear from somebody we haven't heard from yet. Peter Green. At the time I was watching Biafra on the, tele on the television and uh, famine in Biafra. And it, they, they were st people starving to death there and that. And um, I was thinking, why is it always said to be powder, white powder? They thought, you see the women do doing this and all they said to have it is there's white powder. So what is that supposed to be? So um, why can't we give them sandwiches? You know, we'd say, something simple like cheese and some other sandwiches. Why can't we give you know, a cold, that would be surely a big nourishment. Any money we've got from this month, say for instance, we could give to charity, to starvation. That's from the same documentary mentioned earlier on Peter, as is this next clip, legendary British music journalist, Keith Altham. People who started in the business around the time of the Beatles and the Stones and the Yardbirds and Fleetwood Mac were full of youthful idealism and wanted to change the world. And most people, young people around that time, are idealistic and want to change the status quo. They want to do something about the fuck-up that has been going on with the established order since, you know, they've been kids. Then, of course, when they become hugely rich and successful, they become the very people that they were warning against and don't want to give anything up. Well, Peter d didn't want to be a part of that. I think he wanted to get out from under it before he became a part of the same kind of material orthodoxy that, you know, that he was rebelling against. the way I play that is a brand new riff I just learned today <laughs> that's true actually just learned it never played it properly and Peter Green has such a feel 
whether he's playing screaming electric blues licks or that type of acoustic part, I think he's in that category of players where nobody else is going to sound like him. At least it sounds recognizable. I may be corrected by some early Fleetwood Mac fanatics that might say, oh, you slid when you should have pulled off. But anyway, here's how I figured it out. This is a quick detour for the guitar players. Everybody else, just bear with me one moment. Um, did you hear that strumming I was doing at the beginning? The uh, This? That sets up the groove, and I think you need to do that before playing the riff. It's almost like playing percussion. And then once you have that going... Right, that first part that's on the sixth string this is all at the open e position and it's a pull off third fret sixth string sounds like to me at the fifth string first fret to second fret then open fourth string and then it sounds to me again i might not be totally correct on this um, a pull off at the second fret fifth string and then Back to where we started, but reverse. Third fret, sixth string, pulling off to the open string. Except that last low string, that's a power chord. So you put those together. So you guys all know that one. That's OL part one. Did you know that there's an OL part two? Interestingly, Peter Green himself says it's all about Oh Well Part 2. Oh Well Part 1 is just packing for the journey. Oh Well Part 2 is the journey itself. If it were up to him and he were putting out a compilation album, he wouldn't even include Part 1. Well, let's just say I'm, I'm glad he's not choosing the compilation albums. Part 2 is, is really cool. It's just really different. So the idea of losing Oh Well Part 1, which is such a masterpiece, in favor of OL Part 2 only is really difficult to comprehend. With all due respect to the composer, Mr. Green. Now this is also meant with respect, but this uh, feels like it would fit with a 70s martial arts film or a more recent film by Quentin Tarantino. And that's only the middle of the song. There's lots of open space and uh, it has this huge finale. Let's check that out now. Does this feel like something Metallica could have done in the 90s with thicker tone? I find myself waiting for that large drum fill. Yeah! Speaking of Metallica, I promised we would talk about Peter's Les Paul, the 1959 flame top that later ended up in the hands of Gary Moore and found its way to a member of Metallica. And Gary Moore is somebody, many of us were introduced to him as a hard rock guitarist, both with Thin Lizzy and his solo career. And then he reinvented himself as a blues artist, basically getting back to his roots, uh, largely inspired by Peter Green, his original influence, and uh, the person he purchased his favorite guitar from. This guitar has so much history. Uh, first, let's return to my conversation with Mike Zito. You know, not not too many of us <laughs> are in the market for an instrument like that. No, but, uh, I'm just glad somebody has it that you know is is going to use it. It's not going to sit in some living room. Yeah, somewhere. right, right. Yeah, and he lets everybody know that he's got it. It's it's awesome for sure. By the way, a little side note, because I, uh, you know, Gary Moore was like, yeah, still, huge like, influence, wow. right? One of my huge, big-time favorite guitar players. And Same. he did a wonderful Peter Green tribute album. Mm -hmm. Blues for uh, Greening, yeah. Blues for, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, and both those guys have a similar quality, I think, in the sense that, you know, there's not not a lot of effects. 
right? It's just yeah, pure right. tone. It's just no gimmicks. Loud Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that, just that, honesty. Just like... Yeah. yeah, definitely. You're right on the money there. Definitely honesty, for sure. Remember the song we were discussing earlier, The Supernatural? Peter Green's composition with the Blues Breakers, where he really found himself. That's Gary Moore doing that same song in 1995 on the same guitar. Let's take a listen. Oh my god. Much more clearly recorded by 1995. Wow. Oh my god. So we're hearing Gary Moore paying tribute to Peter Green. What a great way to remember them both. Uh, everybody needs to listen to this album, Blues for Greeny. So my buddy Dean Del Rey, he's a professional comedian, used to be a fixture on the Bay Area music scene, both as a singer in his own bands and as a booker. Um, found his way to L.A. and uh, has carved out a successful career in comedy. I've seen him perform at the Comedy Cellar. It was terrific. You know, I mentioned Mark Marin earlier. They're good buds and do comedy tours together. And Dean has his own podcast. It's called Let There Be Talk. And the reason I'm bringing up Dean is Dean has graciously agreed to let us use a portion of a recent podcast he did. By the way, he's been doing his for about nine years. I'm learning from one of the best. And um, he recently had on Kirk Hammett, who showed up with Greeny. Peter Green's Les Paul. So um, I can think of no better person to elaborate on this 59 Les Paul, formerly owned by Peter Green and then Gary Moore, than its current owner. Ladies and gentlemen, with a setup by Dean Del Rey, let's bring in Kirk Hammett. You walk in... With Greeny, the Peter Green Les Paul. I'm sure you've told the story a bunch, but how did you get this guitar? Well, you know, it was really crazy because it really feels like this guitar came to me. Uh, I had been in, uh, in London a couple of days when I got a phone call from uh, a friend of mine who's a, uh, a guitar dealer. And he said, I have a guitar for you to check out. And I said, uh, okay, uh, what's the guitar? And he said, Greeny. And I said... Bro, I'm not I'm not interested in a, a, a guitar with a price tag of two million dollars. And he said, "Nah, it's all poppycock. It's not two million dollars. It's not even one million dollars. You know, that's all rumor." I was like, "Hmm, okay, maybe you should bring it over." I had that guitar in my hand for like maybe a minute and a half, and I just knew, bro. Oh yeah, I just friggin' knew I wasn't gonna give it back. Yeah, I was not <laughs> going to give it back. Yeah, it was amazing, and I hadn't even like come into consideration the fact of oh, who who owned it. Oh yeah, and who was who's played it. I was just blown away by the fact that it was just a super super musical, incredibly tonally gifted piece of wood, man. Unbelievable. There's uh, you know there's a term for that. A four-letter word, and it's called mojo. Yeah, yeah. And mojo yeah. <laughs> that's connected to this piece of wood yeah. is just out of control. Man, I love hearing these details. It's so cool of him to take us right there and share in the experience. There are even more details, too, if you hear it straight from Dean's podcast. This had to be condensed for the sake of time. Although I have a feeling we're going to go over an hour anyway, and that's fine. Before we wrap things up, we have to hear the history of the guitar. And Kirk tells it really well. So here for one more segment, once again, here's Kirk. 
I believe that Peter Green uh, got this guitar somewhere around 1964, 1965. He was in a band called Shotgun Express with Rod Stewart and Bernie Marsden and a couple other... Whoa, uh, I never uh, knew that. Yeah, known people. Holy smokes. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac became a band, operational band, from like 1967, 1968. And so when once Peter Green left, he still had Greeny in his possession. And at one point, Gary Moore, who was looking for one of these guitars, approached Peter Green at about, I would say, 1973, 1974, and worked out a deal with Peter to acquire this guitar. And then... And then Gary Moore had it from like 74 up until like, I don't know, 2005, 2006. Yeah. So, so Gary Moore had some problems with uh, canceling shows. He had to, something happened, he had to cancel a bunch of shows and it put him in debt. He, he figured, well, if I sell Greeny, you know, I can, I, can, I can cover my losses. And so he sold it to uh, a pretty well known dealer, collector who just sat on it, and um, after about, I don't know, three or four years, uh, decided that he wanted to sell it, and that's when all these rumors of I like, started seeing that. Yeah, $2 million guitar, you know, $1 yeah. million guitar. Because of those rumors, no one was really interested in, in like really being serious about buying it. Right. And so it just kind of like languished for a while and made the rounds of all the guitar shows. The guy who, who, who had Greeny uh, came into some uh, financial uh, uh, problems and needed to sell Greeny right away. Wow. He needed a, a quick cash influx, you know? And so that's where I came in. <laughs> Literally at the right place at the right time. That's incredible, dude. Incredible indeed. Man. I'm so grateful to Dean for letting us use the clip. Thank you, Kirk, for telling the story and sharing. And we're all living vicariously through you. And it's so great to see an instrument like that being used and not hoarded. So often these instruments uh, effectively disappear and they're just kind of stockpiled as investments. And it's great to see it out there. And wow, what a story. All right, folks, we are at an hour. This is our longest one yet. That feels like a good length for this, rather than letting it uh, keep expanding into a movie-length podcast episode. I think it's best to wrap this up, and the decision has been made. There will be a sequel. There's so much more to cover. There's uh, further insights from our guests. There's music we didn't look at, additional stories. So that's going to be coming up. I want to thank my guests in alphabetical order, Andy Allidort, Dave Rubin, and Mike Zito. I also want to thank our indirect guests, Kirk Hammett, and special thanks to Dean Del Rey and Let There Be Talk. Research for this episode was greatly helped by the existence of the documentary Peter Green Story, Man of the World, put out by Henry Hathaway Organization, directed by Steve Graham, and uh, available on Amazon Prime. Highly recommended. Thank you, everybody who has subscribed, rated, and told your friends about this podcast. It means a lot. It is greatly helpful. And uh, you've put us on the charts. How cool is that? Um, extra special thanks to our Patreon community, the Skull Team. You can join by going to patreon.com and uh, looking up Alex Skolnick. There's lots of other perks there as well. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly. Opening theme music by yours truly. And closing theme music by yours truly. In this song, I'm joined by Matt Zabrowski on drums and Nathan Peck on bass. That is it for this episode. Thank you so much again. See you next time. Live in Boston Fleetwood Mac series. Oh, shut the fuck up. Hey! Jeez. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. 
Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.